All right, so so far we've seen uh, variables of scalar types, which is a fancy word for single value types, like, for example, what? What are the types that we've seen that store single values in their variables? These so-called built-in types. Anyone give me an example of a type we've talked about that holds a single variable? Or a single value, rather? Yes? Double, right? What's another one? Int, char, right? Bool. Um, we've also seen sort of like meta types, in particular uh, array types, which hold non-scalar values, right? Which means multiple values uh, for one particular variable. And for every scalar type, you can have an associated non-scalar type, right? So you can have a ver um, an array of integers, an array of characters. Um, you can have an array of booleans, an array of doubles, for example. But what if our domain, or in other words, the area in which our softwares will operate, have more complicated types? Let's say a student. So maybe we're making some software um, to record grades, like sort of like a, maybe a Carmen sort of software, where we're working in a university, and the university has students, and it has teaching associate, uh, associates, and professors, and staff, and all that stuff. So it's not really straightforward how to sort of model that domain, like for example, a student, uh, with these sorts of variables. So for example, what data type would you be used to representing a student? Yeah, uh, so you can have maybe, so let's start here. So how to represent, as an example, a student in C++. All right, so one response was uh, we can use a character, like a char variable. So what would that variable represent? Yes? Uh, you could make an array to store names. Uh, we can use an array of characters for a name, right? So maybe a, uh, a character variable would be like the initial, I don't know, middle initial maybe. Uh, we can have an array of characters. Uh, this would be like maybe a full name or first and last name, we'll say. Do you have a question back there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So how would you use an array of characters? XML. Yeah. Um, well, XML, uh, which stands for Extensible Markup Language, is more to do with file processing. Yeah, and you can make a file for each person. .web. Right, which has to do with persistence, which is a bit out of the scope of this class. We haven't been storing things in files yet. Um, in fact, it's not really out of the scope of this class. Um, if we do do some file processing, uh, it would probably more be like like structured plain text. Like, like maybe like fixed width, or we won't actually do like much random, um, like sorting or random searching through a file. So usually we'll start from top of the file and read all the data into memory. Uh, where if you have a structure like XML, it's, that's usually good for like yeah. only picking out a piece of that you know data in the file. So. It's that's definitely related. Um, 
But you won't find, like, for example, that sort of structure in memory most of the time. Actually, that's not actually true because the people are, they like to read that stuff from a file and just keep it in memory just like that. But usually, um, since you're working with main memory, you have a little more flexibility. So you don't need, like, such a structured approach like XML, so... Okay, so we have two kinds of variables here, a char and an array of chars, perhaps for first and last name. Anything else about like an age, right? What would that be? Andrew, maybe, right? A double? Yeah, I guess it could be a double. Uh, for age. But we'll go with just whole numbers. All right, so we got a name, um, maybe an age. Middle initial. So one thing, one problem we have here is that well, you we need to group together for each student um, a series of variables, right? Of varying types. So we can say that, for example, let's just keep the simple case here that you know we'll just use a middle initial. Uh, so a student consists of a middle initial, which is a single char and an age, right? Which is an integer. So there's really two different types of data here. So, so far, we've only been able to declare a variable of a single type, right? We can't say that, you know, let's say we have a variable called student, or let's say a student. So, we can't say something like this. Char, you know, followed by uh, name or something like that. Right? That's, that's not going to work. So, you've got to pick one, right? So what we can do, one, one way to do it uh, would be to have separate variables, right? We could have, let's say, a char, we'll call it middle, middle initial. And for each student, we have an integer representing each. Questions? Uh, there is a string variable type, yes. We'll talk about that later. But you could use, well, yeah, what was referred to here actually was uh, an array of characters. Just like you have an array of integers, you can have an array of characters as well. So that's one way to represent a string or a sequence of characters. But let's keep it simple for now. Let's, let's like, kind of ignore this. Let's just keep like one initial for now. All right, so any problems with this approach? How many students are there in Ohio State? 50,000, so how many students will be there? Let's say here at the beginning of the spring quarter, maybe 51,000, maybe 49,000. You know, it fluctuates, right? Um, so that's a problem. Um, so one thing with the two is to make 50,000 uh, pairs of variables like this. Uh, that would be uh, not very fun. And also, this may dynamically change, right? So the amount of students at Ohio State uh, may fluctuate. Okay, so that's not a good approach. Any other suggestions? What other data types have we learned that, that are good with dealing with a multiple um, values of, of data? Arrays, right. We can have an array. In fact, what we can do is we, for each sort of field of a student, right, for, for any kind of uh, data a student can have, we can have a, an array for that. So can you use arrays? So what I have in mind, as a possible solution to this, 
is that you have one array called, let's say, initials, or initial. And you have another array called h. And then for each field, you have a separate array for that. For example, if you had something like, like a student ID or something like that, or a buck ID, or maybe like courses or whatever. So for each of those fields or traits of a student, we have um, corresponding arrays. And the idea is that each entry in the array represents a, one particular student. And maybe we can have a maximum amount of students. Let's say there'll be no more than 100,000 students at Ohio State. So we can make a static array uh, of the most 100,000 uh, entries. And we keep an actual number right, of students uh, currently at Ohio State, which would be around 50,000. So. So that's one way to do it. Any problems with this approach? So for example, this you know B for Bob. I'll give you a capital B. And then Bob is um, 21. So here are your indices, right? 0, 1, 2, 3. 0, 1, 2, 3. So Bob is student 3. Uh, his initial is B for Bob, and Bob's 21 years old. So basically, you can use like a vertical bar to denote where the students are. Right? So at this point, we have Bob. You know, here's Christy. She's 18. Uh, here's Dolores. She's 36. So on and so forth. So index 1 of initial is the initial for the you know for, for a student number one, and index one at the age array is, is the age of that student. Does that sound doable? So we can sort of represent like varying data types, right? In a single sort of structure. Any problems with this one? Yes? It seems like there's not enough information available. What do you mean by that? If you want to know like their actual whole first name. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I was thinking you could do that if you wanted, but it seems like it wouldn't be very useful. Actually, we could have a whole first name. How would we go about doing that? Or, like, say, let's say it's a, yeah, let's do first name. So let's say we have, we have two more arrays. First and last. So these are going to be arrays of characters. All right, same deal. Maybe this is going to really enlighten what the problem is, or one of the problems. It almost becomes like a table, right? So rows are the fields or the attributes of, of uh, students, and then each column represents an individual student, if you can think of it that way. Okay, so let's say we want first and last to be to represent not a single character, but a sequence of characters. So here we have, let's say, a sequence of characters, or actually a single character up there, but here we want like names. So let's say this is the middle initial, 
And maybe you could restructure this in, in a different order. So let's see. So maybe you want something like this. really short names here. So here's two. Diane and Bruce. So what we can do here is say that every entry in this array doesn't correspond to a single character, but actually holds a sequence of characters. So actually this is called a multidimensional array. It's an array of arrays where each entry of the array is another array. And you can have actually an arbitrary number of dimensions, as much as your memory can hold in C++. So you can have as many dimensions of this as you want. I wouldn't go over three because it gets very difficult to reason about multidimensional arrays or matrices, if you want to think of it that way. So the way you would declare something like this would be as follows. So we would have char middle initial or middle initials rather and maybe this would be like a max max number of students age would be as follows same sort of deal and where max s is like a hundred thousand perhaps okay so so that takes care of the middle initial and the age for the declaration for first name, it would look something like this. All right, so the age of max s, right, where max s is the maximum number of students, but there will be another dimension, and this will be the maximum number of characters uh, that a name can consist of. Oops, sorry, I wrote age there. It should be first. This should be ages, firsts, or first names. So you're going to have another constant called uh, max name side or something like that. And likewise, we can do it for uh, last name as well. Good. And when you reference first, so if you say first sub zero, so that would be the first student in the array. That would be the first student's first name in the array. And you want to say uh, send it to Diane. So you can see something like this. Uh, first of zero sub zero would be the character D. First of zero sub one would be um, I, and so on and so forth. So I wanted to stay away from that case originally, but uh, that's one way you can go about representing strings. It's not a great way. It's kind of tedious, actually. Uh, there are actually shortcuts to that, but we'll talk about that later. Yes? Did you say, um, so max, max S, that's the maximum size. You're saying like whatever it might be. Yeah, like max students. Yeah, like 100,000 maybe. 
So if we assume that Ohio State never gets more than 100,000, I don't know where you'd put 100,000 students on this campus, but uh, yeah, so max S would be like 100 grand. And then the second part, name size, is that's your second dimension. Yes, right. max name size would be a second dimension. Let's say you know nobody's first name goes over 50 characters or something like that. So we have another constant here. So that's one way you can go about um, representing these names as, as arrays. Okay, so now we have some information, right? So that's actually not a problem here. So we can capture enough information if we like. That was a good observation. Any other problems? Yes? Maybe if like, people are graduating or dropping out, then it's kind of hard to keep track of all these spots. Yeah. Yeah, so what if you accidentally you know, for all the fields a student could possibly have, uh, you also have to remember that you must line them up, right? If you sway one way or the other, guess what? You're getting someone else's data, right? So, for example, for Bruce, um, if we happen to sway just one over, we would get, you know, 18 when actually Bruce is 36, as for his age. Uh, so you need a lot of arrays, right, for um, a lot of different students, right, a lot of different fields. And you have to always remember this correspondence between the entries in the array, right? That the entry in initial uh, corresponds to the same entry for the same student in age, etc. Was that what you meant? Or something else? Uh, that, well, that's part of it. But, I mean, like, if you want to go back and look at this thing and keep it updated, it's oh, yeah. really, hard, really hard to find where those blank spots are and have to erase and yeah, and have to erase and all that stuff. Uh, that's true. And you have to do it for each one of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one way to get around that is to just, so if you had to remove a student by, as an example, you can just um, sort of like mark that student bl uh, you know, blank. Or actually what you can do is have another array called like active or something like that, which is an array of what, you think? Which correspond to what they type? Boolean, right, that could be a Boolean. That indicates whether or not, or like I should say enrolled or something like that, if the student's enrolled or not. Um, that would be one way to get around it. So if a student does drop out, you, you keep his or her record, uh, but you just mark it as inactive or unenrolled or <coughs> or set a role enrolled in the corresponding entry to be false. Uh, that's one way to get around that. Um, but yeah, if you are going to be actually like conserving space and actually be concerned about memory consumption, and if we're going to storing this stuff to disk, um, that would be a big problem, right? Because for you know fifty thousand students, you have a lot of fields, and maybe not advantageous to like store all that in memory at a single time, right? So yeah, that's definitely a problem, right? If you're doing any manipulation to these arrays, you have to do it to all of them, or you know if you miss one of them, you're, you're screwed, right? So if you move, let's say you erase one student. And uh, you forget to remove the age, right? And all of it is one off. So it actually kind of relates to what I said earlier. Very, very good observation. Yes? Or if you're, if you're, if you're not deleting the students out of here, you're just making them active or inactive. After a couple of years, you're going to easily pass 100,000. Right. That's, that's a very good point. Yeah. After probably like three years, you, you yeah. finish, right? <laughs> um, yeah. That's a, good, that's a very good point.
Yeah, so there's lots of problems with this. One um, I kind of thought of relevant to this class, what about parameters and functions? Like, what would your function declarations look like? Like, for each, right, for each um, attribute of a student, you'd have to have a separate, actually, you, need, you would need, like, two parameters, right? One for the actual array, another one for the size of the array. It would be a disaster. It turns out you actually can get away with without using a size for character arrays. So there's a special character called a null terminating character, or actually, yeah, it is called a null terminating character, or a sentinel character, and it's actually an escape sequence. It's a um, backslash zero. And this character denotes, or this, this escape sequence denotes in, in a character array that it's the end of the string, or the end of the, the array. So the end of an array is always demarcated by a null terminating character. So you can get away without using um, an integer as, as like a size or an actual size of the array there. You can't do that with, with integers and doubles and bulls because there's just no other values to use. But since you have like a lot of characters that you can use, um, this is one of them. So, so yes, yeah, so if you're writing, if you're declaring functions, your parameter list would be very large. So with the exception of character arrays, uh, you wouldn't have to have two parameters for each data for each um, field of a student. Moreover, if you had to add attributes to the student, so let's say we, add, we want, you know, we decide forget about the age, or maybe we'll keep the age, but we'll also add a birthday in some kind of number representation. You'd have to go back and alter each function that relation to append another two parameters that corresponds to a birthday, right? So for every function declaration you have that, that works with students, you'd have to, to perform the update consistently. So that's a problem. That's error prone. So what are the sort of things you would um, you would think a student would have functionality for. So for example, what sort of functionality would you apply for to a student given this model? So what kind of functions would you imagine that we would have for students? You know, followed by all these these arrays and stuff. How about like adding one to an H, you know, that may be another function. Um, maybe if we had some representation for their grades, we have to maybe calculate their, their overall grade or their GPA. So um, Let's talk about an ideal solution now. So we sort of worked through a solution using what we know thus far in the class. I think the better solution, really, would not really be have this, like, you know, for each attribute of, of a student have a separate array, but what if we just have one single array that represents students all together? So we'll call this array these students, these studs, for sure. And each entry in this array will not correspond to a single integer or, or a sequence of characters or a single Boolean. But what it will correspond to is all attributes of students. So if you zoomed in on this particular entry of the array called the studs, you would see a series of different, different data types. So maybe this one would be, um, you know, char initial. So for each student, if you zoomed into one of these boxes, you would see an initial there. You would see an age, and etc. 
you can see char uh, first name and so on and so forth. So now you have one array, but each entry in the array is not a single value, but a series of values of varying data types. And what would even be nicer is that instead of having all these parameters with your functions, uh, you can sort of group together functionality into this entity here, or this structure. So not only will we have attributes corresponding to students, but we'll also have functions that work with students. For example, we can have a function called um, add one to age or increment age. Maybe some parameters. Maybe we have another function called um, calculate GPA. So all the functions that work with students, right, with information pertaining to students, and the data about students are all grouped together in one, in one logical structure. And the C++, this is called a class. And each instance or each entry in this array is called an object. So let's talk about that. And by the way, when you declare this array, you would actually have a type called student. So you can actually declare this type um, called student, which has, you know, which is made up of or consists of an initial, an age, a first name, etc., and various functions that work with the uh, with students into its own type. So, for example, the, the declaration of the array is something like this. So the type would actually be student. The array name would be the studs, and you would have again max s as a maximum number of students. And every entry in this array, let's say the studs sub 5, the sixth student, if you zoomed in on that entry, uh, you would find what I have here. So you can access different information about the students. You can apply different operations to students. Calculate the GPA, increment age, uh, all sorts of nice stuff. Does everyone agree this would be a, a better solution than what we've presented so far? may not be the, the best solution, but definitely better than what we have on the board thus far. So by the way, that being said, object orientation isn't the answer to everything. Uh, but it's, it, it does solve some problems um, that we have on the board here. So object-oriented programming is a way, really, to model uh, your domain in the programming languages more closely to real life. So you would have um, a class, or I should say a data type for students. You may have a data type for a teaching associate, like myself. Uh, you may have a data type for, uh, for a staff member, for a professor, et cetera. So you can use, like, you can sort of make your own data types that correspond to your domain of where the program is going to be executing. And sometimes it's a lot easier to um, the reason about your programs that way. In fact, this sort of programming uh, stemmed from simulation programming. The first object-oriented language is called Smalltalk, and it was really made for simulation. So they had, you know, if you're thinking about like simulating. Um, Something you know, in, in the computers before you apply it out to real life, you may have like several objects, and you want to see how those objects act upon each other. And why it's called small talk is because these objects send messages to each other. 
So they communicate to each other by sending very small messages. And what they really correspond to in, in the C++ setting anyway is that uh, these messages are actually function calls with minimal parameters. So it's like small talk. So that's a little bit of knowledge for you there. Great. And by the way, you can have like objects that don't correspond to anything in real life. For example, you may have an object called corresponding to like a buffer. Yeah, what, what is a buffer in real life? I don't know. Yeah, it could be anything really. So it's just a way of thinking about programs. It's quite useful actually, and, and maybe you'll, you know you might like it over um, our previous ways. Okay, so let's continue this discussion about object orientation. Is there any questions so far, or are there any questions so far? Yes. Uh, student, could it just be replaced with any word we'd like? Like if we were to make a different um, class. Could, could you make your own like class names like this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there like any special like special uh, declaration? Yeah. Yeah, I'll get to that next. Okay. Yeah, you need um, a special keyword instruction. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, uh, I should say here that one nice thing about this, what we have on the board here, is that if you're going to add an attribute, for example, like like a, a birthday to a student, um, you don't need to change all the functions, right? All the function declarations that correspond to to working with students, because they're sort of like built in to the data type. So if the function just takes a student as a parameter, then that's all you need. You don't have to change that. Uh, but also, you, you know, the functions that you have built into this, into the type here, those don't change as well. Maybe the implementation of those changes, but the, but the interface doesn't change. So that's good. Good. Any other questions? No? All right. So let's look about how we can uh, declare our own types in classes and stuff. Make objects. <clears throat> All right, so declaring classes in C++. And by the way, I know we talked a little bit about the difference between C, which is the predecessor language, and C++. And actually, C uh, is a subset of C++. C++ is a superset of C. In fact, C, C++ is really C with classes. So when you add the plus plus to C, the incrementation, really what you're adding is classes. That's the main difference between the two. All right, so classes are a way to collect common data This is called member data. And functions these are called member functions and the word member really comes from the class membership like a uh, some you know someone's a member of a class or something's a member of a class or a member of a set member functions together to form one logical unit. 
becomes a so-called um, programmer define type. So you can make your own types using classes. In fact, there are other ways to make your own types. Uh, does anyone recall any? It was on the midterm in the homework, statistics homework. Yes? Item? Yeah, like type def. Yeah, type def is a way to make your own classes. There's also, or types rather, um, there's another way to make your own types called enum, which is a simple enumeration. I think we talked a little bit about that, right? I can't remember. Could be some other class to talk about it. Anyway, uh, classes are another way to make your own type. In fact, I, I sort of consider these like a, like a strong way to make your type because they're actually different types from what we have so far. So, for example, type defs are aliases to another type. Classes are really your own type. And in fact, I don't think there's any built-in classes in C++. And all classes, I believe, come from libraries. Well, there could, there's a standard libraries of C++, is what, what we've been using so far. But unlike the primitive types like bool, int, double, there are no built-in classes. So really, every class is a programmer-defined type, whether it's yourself or whether it's someone that's made the library. Okay. An instance, so here I'm defining some, some key terminology of a class is called an object. For any class, at any time, there could be zero or more instances. And then the asterisk will represent the more objects or instances. And really, you can use those two terms interchangeably. Instance is an object, and object is an instance. So you'll, you'll hear them um, used interchangeably. So you can think of a class as a sort of template. And I'll put that in quotations because there actually is a thing in C++ called templates that have basically nothing to do with classes. Uh, so if you know about templates in C++, just shut that light off for a second. So, so there's sort of like a template to create objects. And my favorite example of this is to consider a class as a sort of cookie cutter. So you define a class or you're a programmer-defined type, namely in this example, student, to consist of the following. Initial, right, a middle initial, which, which is a character type, an age, which is an integer type, and a first name, which is an array of, um, of character, character arrays, rather. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a, a, char, a character uh, as a middle initial, an integer for the age, 
an array of characters for their first name, and so on and so forth. And of course, the functionality that goes along with, it, along with that. So, a student can be this class or this programming defined type we have here uh, is sort of a template for how to stamp out students. So, every student has an initial, an age, a first name, etc. If you think of the cookie cutter analogy, so let's say you have a cookie cutter that you bought um, from Target. Uh, for Easter. So you're out to make Easter cookies, because that's, I guess, the upcoming, one of the upcoming holidays, let's say. So the cookie cutter looks like a bunny. You make a whole blob of dough here. And here's your cookie cutter. And you guys get to enjoy my beautiful artwork, as usual. So there's your bunny cookie cutter. That's actually a little too big. <laughs> yeah, that's basically one cookie. Either that or the dough is too small. I don't know. One of those two. All right. So basically, you take your cookie cutter, right? So the cookie cutter sort of shows like the shape of all cookies uh, made with it, right? So every one of these bunny cookies for Easter is going to have the shape. It's going to have long ears, right? A head, a body, and two legs, which totally represents a bunny in real life, right? That's exactly how they look like. So you take your cookie cutter and you stamp it on the dough, right? And you make little individual bunny cookies. So let's say we have three. I should have been an art major. All right, they all look totally different. <laughs> all right, pretend they look the same. It works, it works much better around Christmas time because I can make snowman cookies. Um, actually, I could have done that with all the snow on the ground now. Usually it's too late by this, this time. Anyway. All right, so you have uh, bunny cookies. And even though they pretend they all look the same, uh, maybe some of them are different. So maybe some you toss the chocolate sprinkles on. Maybe some have like peanuts on them. Maybe some have M&Ms. Maybe their eyes, I don't know. So even though all these bunny cookies have the same shape, they have different flavors on them. And that sort of corresponds to how students work here. Right? Every student has a, a middle initial, an age, a first name, a last name. Uh, but the values of those entries are all different. Or they, they probably should, at least one of them should be different, right? I'm sure there could be more than one John Doe or something like that. Uh, but maybe there's also an ID which identifies uh, particular students. So, for example, you know, one student can have a middle initial of T, age can be 21, as we had in the previous example, and the first name is Bob. Another one may be Mary, age 22, middle initial R. Just like the bunnies here, you know, this bunny has M&Ms, this one has chocolate sprinkles, this one has marshmallow. Sound good? And one thing to recognize, and this is kind of um, confusing at first, is that just because you have a cookie cutter doesn't necessarily mean you have cookies, right, that you've made with that cookie cutter. You actually have to make the dough and stamp out the cookies and everything. So you can think of this, this bunny here, this, this cookie cutter as a class. And these individual cookies are the instances for objects. And that's why I say that every class has zero to many instances at any given point. So basically, this cookie cutter can be sitting in your kitchen drawer and you have never used it, right? You have no cookies to show for it. Just a cutter. It works the same way in classes. We can have a student class. It has this nice schemata of what a student's supposed to look like, uh, but we actually have, we have no students yet, right? 
Okay. Any questions so far? So let me go over some implementation details. Let's see what should I erase. Um, I'll erase this one. So how to make your own class. So you must declare classes. Just like variables, just like functions, uh, just like arrays, you declare them. Class is a keyword. Just like integer is a keyword, int is a keyword, double is a keyword, um, static cast is a keyword, um, return is a keyword. So class is also a keyword. You declare a class much like a variable or a function. So it's similar, but not entirely the same. So when you declare a variable, for example, you declare what? The name of the, of the variable, right? So we'll say bar name. And uh, let's say you give it a type, right? So let's say var name would be, um, you know, some type here. Or type is some, like, maybe char or int or bool or something like that. So type here portrays the data type of this variable, which represents the type of data or the kind of data that will be stored in the variable. So you can think of types in C++ and data types in particular as being, like, sets of all valid values that could be held by that variable. It's much the same way with classes as well. So a concrete example would be int counter. So the way you refer to this variable is through the name counter, which is identifier. And likewise, uh, int, the keyword here, denotes the type of the variable. And that, that says uh, or denotes the, the kind of data that can be stored there, right? 2 to the negative 31 to positive 2 to the 32 for unsigned integers. So for classes, it looks a little different, but basically what you're going to be doing is laying out the structure of what instances of, of your class are going to look like, or objects of your class are going to look like. So the keyword is class, and it's followed by your class or type name. And I'll capitalize the first letter. So it looks like that. And where class name is the name of your class. And by convention, class names, or at least the ones that we are going to define. So Class names that come from libraries, or classes that you include from a library uh, as part of the standard distribution of C++, usually don't follow this convention. But any program-defined class or types um, 
I like the file that's going to where class names are in title names. And note the notes to me, and to yourself, and whoever else re reads your code, that this is a type that you've created. It's not part of the standard C++ library. So for example, you'd have class student with a capital S, and maybe class teaching associate. There's other stuff that goes there. That's how the name, how you justify the name of the, uh, the class. So just like you declare a variable when you declare a class, you specify to the compiler uh, what data will be held in variables of the class or instances of the class. All right, so where do these declarations go? And I really hate to uh, destroy my bunny rabbit picture here. If you're, if you're interested, they're on sale at eBay. Auction ends tomorrow. Collector's items, I'm sure. So we'll be storing class declarations in guess what kind of file? Starts with an H. Ends with a dot H. <laughs> Header files. So class declarations. This is why we learned about this in the last homework. stored in header files. This is the dot h file. Usually, <coughs> files are named after the class. So for example, if you had a student class, what would your header file, header file's name be? Student.h. Oh, and by the way, usually um, to, to demarcate um, different words, you have like a, an underscore. Uh, some other languages they don't use the underscore. Like, and in, in, in Java, uh, rather in C++, it's common to use that. And oh, by the way, if you're familiar with like older programming languages, these are actually called records. Yes? Um, are the class names always uh, capitalized first letter? By convention. Yeah, just it's not a requirement. Uh, the ones from the libraries are not. So it's a good indication. If I, if I see in your code, or if someone else sees in your code that they're, you know, you're reading your code, that the first letter is capitalized, they know, oh, this is something that you create. It's not something you've included from a library, for example, like from a standard library. All right, so you'd have similar like student.h. You'd have maybe teaching associate.h. And that would hold the class declaration file. And usually, or typically, just to change it up here, one class declaration per file. This is not always the case. But at least for us, I think it will be. Um, for the most part. 
So you have only one class per file, uh, and you name the header file after your class. We'll follow that convention. I think it, it makes things simple. All right, just like you have declarations of variables and declarations of functions, you also have definitions of variables and definitions of functions. And just like we did with the functions, we're going to declare the classes in the header file. And then we're going to um, go about defining the class and an implementation file. And we'll see what that means. It's going to be a little different from variables and functions. But, but it's going to be similar. All right. Class definitions. So there's two parts, right? There's declarations and there's definitions. I'll talk more about that later. Will be stored. In an implementation file. Um, that is the .cc or .cpp file. Our files for this class will have the same name. As a class. As the header file. Uh, as a class. That's not always the case, actually. Um, sometimes you may have multiple implementations for a given class. Maybe one implementation of a class has features the other one doesn't, and you may have two different you know, implementations for the same class. Obviously, you could have those be both the same name, right? Because they wouldn't have name conflicts. Although you can use namespaces there, so which is uh, what that using namespace standard actually means when you write your programs. So our files will have the same name as the class. So for example, the corresponding implementation file would be student.cc or the definition file or you know, teaching associate.cc. Anyone else hot in here? I'm like dying. Yes? Oh, you were agreeing? I thought you had a question. Yeah, I'm dying here. Okay, so let's go back to declaring class. Oh, by the way, for the most part, um, definitions of classes will consist of function definitions for those classes. So defining the class typically means define, there may, there may be other stuff you need to do here, but usually it means defining the member functions of the class. So for example, if you had a member function for students, 
that let's say was called increment h. So you may have this in your duck relation. I'll show you that in a second. Maybe have no parameters, um, no return type. So let's say it's a void function. We'll see why in a second. And to show that it's a member function, you need to scope uh, the header the header line of your functions. So for example, this would be your function de um, definition here. This is a function body. So you need to scope the name of your function to the class name. To say, okay, this this member, this function is a member function of a particular class. In this case, it's a student class. The way you do that is as follows. You write the class name prior to the function name. This is where it gets a little confusing, I think. And they use something called a scope resolution operator, which is two semicolons. Excuse me, two colons, not two semicolons. So this is called the scope resolution. There's other ways to use this operator, but it's called the scope resolution operator. So this says that increment h is a member function of student. And by the way, you can write, you can declare functions in classes that are actually not member functions. So this is this is how you specify what's a member function and what's not a member. And if you work in a language like Java, this is definitely different from Java. Yes? Okay, so when you write your class, just putting member functions in, you have to declare them separately as well? It turns out that you can do this together. Uh, this is called function inlining. However, it's sort of a dark art. Um, because when you inline function definitions into a class declaration, uh, the compiler will also inline the definitions into client code or like your application code. And that could be sort of like not very not very efficient in some cases. So usually the, the common convention really is if you have a short definition is to inline it. Okay. But if you have a longer definition, to separate it into different files. But for this class, we'll, we'll do everything separate. Okay. Just like we, we declared and defined functions separately, we'll do that with, with classes as well. Okay. Good question. Okay. So... Right, so this is the class name. It's not the return type, by the way. And this is the function. And everything else is the same. And a member function, remember, or recall, uh, works with the data of the class exclusively. Well, not exclusively, because you can have parameters as well. And of course, you have access to global variables, which we don't use in this class. But they're meant to be, you know, increment age is meant to increment the age of a particular student. All right, so let's finally look at an example declaration of a class. So the first class we're going to do uh, actually won't be a student class because it'll be a little complicated. Uh, we'll do a fraction class. Yes? Where's that? Yeah. We'll get to that next. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the function declarations are going to look the same. Okay. The only difference is if you're writing a member function, 
that you scope it to the class that's member of. So, so far in the .cc file, the implementation file, it's the same thing. In the header file, yeah, you're going to need a semicolon, which is a difference between Java, actually, so, or C Sharp. So, Bridge, if you're used to working with those, it'd be a problem. I'll show you in a second. Okay, so class fraction. This will be our first class. So, we'll use the class keyword. And, oh, this is going to be in a file called fraction.h, which corresponds to the header file for our class. So, we'll make a file called, pretend we'll make a file called uh, fraction.h. In fact, we'll be doing this for homework. So, we'll actually make a, a, a file called fraction.h. And it's followed by the class name. Since it's a class we're making, it's a programmer-defined type. We'll capitalize the first letter. We'll call it a fraction, and it's just going to be a real number. So numerator over denominator. All right, the syntax is as follows. And this is here is where you lay out the template of what a fraction looks like. And what I mean fraction, I mean like, you know, 1 over 2. Here's some instances of fractions, 5 over 6, 7 over 8, 8 over 7. 8 over 8. These are all fractions. So yeah, you can represent these things in do as doubles, right? And um, well, that's a good question. Can you represent all fractions as doubles in C++? No. What's one fraction you can't represent as a double? One third one. What's a famous one? 22 over 7? Pi, right? Yeah. One third also, yeah. So, yeah, so they're actually, you know, this is a type that actually can represent, like, pi, for example. So, yeah, heavy stuff. So it's, it's a type for real numbers. Okay. All right, so after your um, class name, next step is to open up a compound statement. So here's our friend, the compound statement again, or block. And yes, thank you for pointing this out. This is a big, big star here. I'm going to draw the semicolon very large as a result. You need a semicolon after the class declaration. So you open up your compound statement and immediately end it with a semicolon. Otherwise, it's a compilation error. It's a huge pain. I, I know because I form in different languages and I always forget it. So. Okay, so that's your, your body or the declaration uh, of your class. And in here, between these two um, break, uh, braces, rather, goes what the fraction looks like. So we'll say that a fraction consists of two integers, right? And numerator and denominator. So we'll go ahead and make member data for that. Before we do that, however, we're going to start something called a private section. Private is another keyword. And it's followed by a colon. It says that every declaration that comes after this keyword is considered private. Um, private means not directly accessible. I that, right? To clients. By clients, just like a function client, right? Whoever uses this, this, this type. So maybe your main function somewhere is going to make a type fraction variable and, and make objects a fraction. That would be a client. So what we're going to do is hide member data from these clients. 
So I have two pieces of member data, a new and a dead, which is a numerator and denominator, respectively. So this is the two parts of the fraction. Um, it may not be clear why we're going to do this at first. But there's something called information hiding in computer science. And what it actually really means is that we want to talk about these types abstractly. So more specifically, we don't really know, we don't want to let the clients know what the internals of a fraction look like. And it's very much like a black box analogy of functions. So when we sell our functions over to the students at 202, we don't actually show them the implementation details, right? We send them the .o instead of the .cc file. It's, it works similar with classes. So if we decide to like alter the representation of the class, maybe we change that to some other representation that's maybe faster or, you know, or has some other sort of benefits, uh, client programs can remain unchanged. So we hide the actual uh, internal representation of what these, these objects look like on the inside. What we will expose, however, is something called mem uh, public member functions. So just like there's a private keyword, there's also a public keyword. And in the public section, we will have uh, member functions. This will be directly, anything after this will be directly accessible, if I can spell that right, to clients. So clients have access to this. So they may call functions, right, that are in uh, the public section of a class. And by the way, you can have multiple public and private sections. So you can have another private section after this. You can have another public section after that. This is the convention usually to have private and then public. Um, but if you feel diff you want to do it differently, that's fine. Um, you can have private member functions. That's fine. Uh, for our class, however, we'll ne never, or our course rather, I should say course instead of class, now that class is a keyword I'm introducing, uh, we'll never have public member data. So I'll write that down. If I ever see public member data, that's automatic E. I'm just kidding. But please don't use it. It's kind of like global variables. So you're leaking the representation of, of your type if uh, you use public member data. So you want to talk about your types abstractly through the operations that could be applied to your types. So for example, integers, you, you, know, you don't really have to know how an integer is represented in the Computer, right? To use it, right? You know, you add integers together, you get another integer, you can subtract them, you can divide them. So you think of the operations of these types. It'll be the same thing for our, for our own types as well. So note that no, uh, no public member data. No go tos. No public member data, no global variables. You can't think of anything else. All right, good. All right, so after this, we'll have in the public section the member functions. So these will be the functions that operate on the member data. So I just. Um, 
So I just said that there are a couple different operations we can use for integers, right? We can add integers together. We can subtract integers. We can divide integers. What sort of useful operations would you say would be nice for fractions? Sort of like the same ones, right? Like adding fractions, subtracting two fractions, uh, maybe finding a reciprocal of a fraction might be another one. But we'll start very simple. Let's, let's have some functions that read and write fractions. So let's have one function. It'll be a void function called print. So given a particular fraction, print member function, and sometimes I call these operations, by the way. Um, I'll probably interchange member functions and operations quite often, but I'll try to use member functions if I can. So the print member function will print the given fraction, uh, the numerator over the denominator. So that's my first function there. Likewise, we'll have one. <laughs> so this one reads from Cn. And this one, by, by the way, prints the C out, standard output. This will be from standard input. Reads numerator. Why are there no parameters in this function? How do those functions work with no input? Any guesses? Yes? Since your private and public variables are defined outside the scope of functions, uh, not because they're outside the scope of the functions, but there's, but there's something about those those fun that, that these functions that allow access to these data. <coughs> so the only functions that can access member data are member functions. So yeah, it's kind of like it's yeah, I guess it is kind of like it's good. Let's write that down as well. So member functions are special. Let's just say only member functions. Have the access. To private member data. And really, that's going to be all member data for us since we're never going to have public member data. And by the way, there are other levels. Um, there's also something called protected, which hopefully we'll get into in the later weeks. But we'll deal with public and private right now. So member functions have access, only member functions have access to private member data. And functions, rather. Member data, and I'll say, and member functions. So you can have private member functions. All right, so before we talk about how to implement these functions, how to define these functions, um, let's first talk about how to use fractions. So let's say you have a client program. Let's say it's a main function in some driver file. We'll call it um, crack driver or something.
So the first thing we have to do is include what? Maybe IO stream, right? Might want to write read and write to the screen. So I want to use fractions from they're not part of the standard library in C++, so they're going to be from our header file that we've created over there. So what's one thing I'm missing there? Yes. Yeah, right. Town include. Fraction. And note that those must be in quotes. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Uh, but you wouldn't, as a client function, you may not know that. Uh, but yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, if you do know that, yeah. Um, if you know, if you sold this class to like a member of CC202, they may not know, right? Because you may not tell them. But yeah, that's a very good point, yeah. Thanks. All right, so the way you go ahead, uh, you go about using such a, uh, such a class is that you would have access to the type called fraction. So here is um, a variable <coughs> of fraction, of type fraction. So that's how you go about declaring that. So now frac refers to a fraction. <laughs> Not too much uh, to say about that. So how does it look like in memory? So if you take a look at memory. Here's space for frac. And really, frac has two parts. Right? One's for the numerator and one is for the denominator. And they're both integers. What's the value of numerator and denominator at this point? Anyone know? Take a guess. Zeros. Garbage. Yeah, it's garbage. So the default value for member data is nothing. It's garbage in C++. That's not the case in every language. Uh, for example, in Java, um, the default Default value for integers of instance fields, is, which is what member data is called in Java, is zero for, for integers. So why would zero be a bad, bad idea here as a default value? Can't divide by zero. Can't divide by zero, right. So anything over zero is not a valid number, right? Not a number in the end. So anyway, they're garbage right now. So what we want to do, do you have a good question? Yes. Uh, it does actually. But it does. Mm -hmm. It's because otherwise it makes it because when I've done this, usually it just ends up crashing the program if I try to access data this way. Oh yeah, there, you shouldn't access data because it's all it's still garbage. So the next thing I'm going to do is actually I'm going to read. So I want to read. I want to call the member function read, 
to read in good values from from yeah, from, from that's standard that's input. I didn't mean, that would work. I thought you meant to make a new fraction. Value semantics. In C++, you can declare objects as either values or, or references to objects. So it works It works this way. Yeah. It does not work this way in, in, in reference semantic languages. So um, if it makes any sense, this object will be stored on the stack and not the heap. Okay. Yeah. It's a stack variable. I'll get into that later if we talk about recursion. Uh, that's a good question. All right. So... I want to call the readMember function to read in data this fraction from standard input, and I do it as follows. Frac.read. Hey, what does this look like? Familiar to anybody? Where if we use this sort of notation? Anyone remember? Remember the palindrome homework, right? EOF? Remember the control D sequence? When we you had to ask, instead of asking the user how many, how many numbers the sequence is, we would say, you know, enter a number, um, a amount of numbers until you hit control D, which stands for the end of end the file. Well, guess what? It looks a lot like that. Um, so, frac is the, uh, is the variable name, variable holding the object, read is the call to the member function, And this dot here is something called the selection operator. And this is the same sort of notation we have with cn, uh, cn.eof. And if you ever use cn.get or get line, things like that, it's called the selection operator. So this says I select the read member function to be applied to the object held by the variable frac. And if you can think of it this way. So think of frac as being an object much like my computer is on your desktop, right? Everyone has a my computer or I guess my Mac. What does my Mac have? Oh, Macintosh HD. So if you right-click that, what do you get? Get a whole bunch of options, right? Open, what do I have here? Services, open, get info, burn Mac HD to disk. I don't think that would work. Duplicate, make alias. So you have a bunch of options, right? Properties, if you're running on Windows. So you think of this, this selection operator as being a way to right-click on frac. And as you right-click on frac, you get a bunch of operations available to you, and those exactly correspond to the public member data and functions available in the class. One of, this, uh, one of these options is read. So you say, select the read operation on the fraction. This read operation, when we write it, will actually go and read data into the fraction from CN. And we have Tom will write that. So afterward, if I say frac, so continuing here, if I say frac.print, hopefully that will print to see out whatever fraction I entered over here and read. Prints to standard out. S to the out. Any questions? So this is the difference between the normal functions we've, we've done so far and the member functions. So member functions are always preceded by the selection operator. Uh, and that selection operator always selects an operation or a member function from a particular object. So frac is an object here. 
That's not always the case. But in client code, it is. So in client code, member functions will always look like this. Uh, now, inside the fraction class, that's a different story. So let's get to that. It may or may not look that way. Uh, in fact, it could look that way if you want, but there's something called an implicit parameter there, which is a pain in the butt. And we'll have to deal with that unfortunately. Oh, I just like erased like a part of the program. Sorry about that. Frac.print. And then in memory, you know, you have whatever you entered. For example, if you entered 1 over 2, right, that's what gets printed there. So this is frac, right? Okay, quickly, so we can all go home. Now that it's boiler. Um, so let's say you have your fraction.cc class. So what does the implementation of this look like? For let's say, let's do the, let's do the read one. Or should we do print? Read, print. Let's do read. So, okay, so it's going to look like this. It's a void function. It's going to be a member function of the class fraction, so we need to scope it using the scope resolution operator. Uh, to the class fraction, followed by the name of the function, which is read. It takes in no parameters, and we'll see why in a second. Open up a compound statement. So this is going to be very similar to the functions we've done so far. Except notice that there are no parameters here. There are no explicit parameters because this function has access to the private member data of the fraction, which currently, at this point, is just garbage, right, when this function starts. Well, it may or may not be garbage, but let's say it is. So how can I go about reading from CN? And let's say you pound include, you should pound include um, IO string here somewhere. You can do it up here if you like. Uh, so you would pound include fraction.h here. And then you pound include IO stream as well. So here's an example of a function that does use CN and CAP. In this particular case, it'll be CN. So you want to give me the implementation of this function? Really quick, so you guys can do your homework tonight. Or tomorrow? Or the day after? <laughs> It'll be due on Thursday. So what, the def what would the definition of that function be? So this function is supposed to read from standard input, right, which is represented by CN, numerator over denominator. Yes? CN entering numerator. Or I don't know how you want to do it. Yeah, let's say no props. Um, yeah, you can do something like that. Uh, should we do that? We're going to look at the Yeah, uh, I guess we can. Yeah, all right. See so, yeah. All right, so let's see ya. Um, yeah, enter num. Let's just keep it simple, followed by that. One after another. Good. Noom. Yeah. That's it. So the three parts: header, client, implementation file. <coughs> Sound good? Okay. So for homework, I want you to read up on something called constructors. So read about constructors because you're going to need it for homework, and which will be due on Thursday. Um, I'll post it on the Carmen plan. Read about Thursday. No, don't read about Thursday. Read about constructors.
So we're going to have to go a little faster at this point. So, um, so do that on your own. And I'll, I'll post some homework. That's D1 Thursday. <laughs> and if you have any questions, feel free to see me after class. And otherwise, have a great, have a great night. Drive home safely and all that good stuff.